We'd like to thank Cassiopeia Books for sponsoring Voices and Views. They are located at 606 Central Avenue in downtown Great Falls. Besides being a place to find your favorite books, they also host events with authors, book clubs, and local groups weekly. For special orders or more information, you can reach them at 315-1515. Welcome to Voices and Views on Great Falls Public Radio, KGPR 89.9 FM. Today on the show, I have the honor of interviewing the Grand Dame of Great Falls, a community leader, doer, and innovator for many decades, Arlene Reichert. Arlene, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Beautiful, beautiful introduction. Thank you. <laughs> and and very well deserved. Uh you know, I'm I'm relatively new to Great Falls. I've been here for a little over seven years, and I'll tell you what: you talk to folks around town, and and anything that's you know been going on in our community, and uh, oftentimes you see that you know you've played a, a, an important role. So I, I I salute you. Thank you. And and let's jump right in. I I think you know for our listeners today, the first thing we want to talk about is the upcoming uh, Cascade Preservation event. So tell our listeners what do we what do we have coming up? We're having an annual event, and we haven't had one for years because of the pandemic, of course. So we're really looking forward to it, and it's September eighteenth, and it's at seven o'clock in the Great Falls Civic Center Gibson Room. I was so pleased that we're able to do this. You know, um, I'm almost 98 years old, and I'm not going to be participating actively, you know, very much longer. I think this is probably my swan song, but I am very anxious to meet and greet bridge supporters as we've done year after year, except during the pandemic. I mean, our last big meeting was in 2020. So it's been three years, so I'm looking forward to this. I'm so glad I lived to see another meeting, but it is uh, going to be special, I think. Absolutely. So what what is the agenda look for the night? So it's September 18th in the Gibson Room at the Civic Center, and we're going to be, you know, honoring and uh, the bridge supporters. And for those of our listeners that aren't familiar, Arlene's one nickname is the Bridge Lady, and that gorgeous old arch bridge uh, that's kind of right next to the the Ninth Street Bridge, going over with the refinery, uh, was going to be uh, demolished, and and it really is a, a piece of our heritage and and a gorgeous structure, and so she has been integral in in ensuring that it's not only uh, maintained but actually refurbished and and a beautiful walking bridge for our community. So, Arlene, again, what what are we going to have going on there uh, on the night of September eighteenth? Well, on that night, we'll have our regular business meeting that we have every year when we were able to have it, but also we have some guest speakers, and I think the main focus will be on Bruce Pollington, who is the head of the River's Edge Trail Foundation, and what makes me so happy, because it was predicted it could never be done, the bridge 
has been integrated into the River's Edge Trail. You know, for years, as we were saving it, it was a bridge to nowhere because it was closed at one end. But as uh, people who live here know, we did have a ribbon cutting about a year ago, and now the bridge is open all the way across, and it's such a blessing. Of course, in the space of these years since we started this project, which was 1994, it was 30 years ago, and it was predicted to be torn down. I mean, people said, that bridge isn't going to be there. It's going to be torn down. In fact, it was even removed from all the maps prior to our officially saving it and having it made part of our, our riverfront. And so I'm so glad that we're having this big meeting. And what Bruce Pollington will do is talk to our supporters and interested people. Everybody's invited. This is open to the public. It's free, no charge to attend. And I'm just hoping that people will be there to talk to Bruce, and he's going to involve the public in the discussion about the future of the bridge as it relates to River's Edge Trail and Great Falls. And then we're going to also have a little history. Um, there's this wonderful consummate storyteller teller here in town, Richard Bird Baker. And interestingly, his great-grandfather, George Washington Bird, worked on the city and surveying, and he was a colleague of the wonderful architect George Shanley, who designed a bridge in 1920. So Richard's going to be talking uh, about that era of 1920 and telling us what was going on then. So people will get a very interesting history background of the time when the bridge was built. Of course, we'll have a social gathering and we'll be able to visit. And I'm hoping that many, many people will attend. And there's no obligation. Just just be there. We hope we get a good crowd. The problem is, you know, there won't be any publicity in the paper uh, because, you know, Tribune doesn't really usually do things like that anymore. Over the years, they gave us front-page stories every year when we had our annual get-together. I think that with the help of public radio and other stations and interested people, there should be enough interested folks in the Gibson Room that night to, to make it worthwhile. I hope so. I want to see everybody and thank them for all they've done. I mean, this just didn't happen. It was a lot of work. A lot of people have helped. And the sad thing is so many of the people who worked hard to save this bridge and restore the bridge are now gone. It, you know, it's sad, but it's part of life. But I'm still here. I, I hope I last till the meeting. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a couple things. One, maybe the tribunal will hear about this interview and, and decide, you know, that they should cover this as well. And I think that's, you know, hopefully we can be a catalyst for, for further uh, publicity. And the other thing is, wow, 30 years. I, I think of that, that you want to talk about determination. And I love that the event will, it can be a, a page turner of sort, right? That you get the history. I, I'm fascinated to learn more about 
not only the cultural milieu of you know 1920s Great Falls, but the it's Chandler, right? Is the the architect? Shanley, George Shanley. He he designed the Ursuline Center. He designed a lot of wonderful places in Great Falls. He was a great architect, and his grandchildren are still in this area. They're very good supporters of the bridge. Yeah, I love it that I'll tell you what the Ursuline Center is a real gem, both on exterior. I was so happy that they did a lot of external renovations, but you know I know they've done a lot in the interior as well, and that's a. I think that you know that's over a hundred thousand square feet. The the beautiful. Yeah, the interior of it is really artistic. I say they don't have the craftsmanship today for the most part that that we did uh, back, you know, in kind of the early twentieth century. You know, like bridges, for instance. One of the reasons I'm so glad that we're maintaining and preserving this bridge is that they don't make them like you know. It's not like we'll have another bridge. That's similar that a hundred years from now, you know, will not be structurally sound for cars, but would be a great uh, sort of gathering place for for the community. The the bridges are all just reinforced concrete, and I w- will say generously that they are utilitarian. Right? They don't have those same, you know, gorgeous arches where they're a piece of art as well as a, a part of your tra- transportation infrastructure. You're exactly right, Thomas. I've always said a thing of beauty is a joy forever. I mean, who is that, Shelley or Keats, one of them, um, used that in his poetry. But it is, I, I just, I, it's one of the blessings of my life. I have a lot of blessings, of course. My family is a blessing. And the city of Great Falls is a blessing. But the bridge, you know, they, they said it couldn't be done. For one thing, um, we had to do it. On a very, on a very usual basis, because uh, we did, we couldn't uh, involve the taxpayers. You know, taxpayers had enough problems, so we pledged we're going to build that bridge and raise enough money through donations and a lot of grant applications were written without the help of the local taxpayers. The local cities, though, helped us in other ways because when we were destined to lose that bridge, you know, it was within six days of being blown to bits. And at that time, I think there were even letters to the editor say, the bridge should be blown up. That old bridge is falling apart. Blow it up with Arlene Reichert on it. <laughs> My family was appalled, but I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, I got some vitriol going. So I, I had no idea it was that close, Arlene. It was six days, and they had scheduled a demolition? Oh, yes, it was ready to, it was removed from all the maps. I mean, the, the powers that be had the bridge removed. If you looked for a map of the Missouri River at that time, there's no 10th Street Bridge. Uh, we had to go to court. You know, uh, this was a long process. Ultimately, it wound up in the federal court system. Uh, Pena was Secretary of Transportation, and the case was Riker versus Pena. <laughs> And we had a wonderful Ninth Circuit Court judge who loved Montana, Judge Pragerson. He played a very important role in helping to save that bridge because when we went to court, we had to move up the various stages of court. Ultimately, we got to the Ninth Circuit Court because the bridge was going to be destroyed. And when the Ninth Circuit Court heard this case, they heard it in Seattle, they, the three, 
that was a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit. They said they can be saved, but it, there's got to be several restrictions. And they assigned, which was a blessing, they assigned Judge Harry Pragerson, who loved Montana. He had been here many times. He just loved Montana. They assigned him as a mediator. So he, as mediator, helped us when we got through the court system and we had reached the federal court system. And, oh, it was just a really big deal. <laughs> it was just amazing. He helped negotiate this wonderful public-private partnership. And we have to thank the city because the rule was a governmental body had owned the bridge. And at that time, the governmental body was led by, I think, John Lawton. He was the mayor. And he agreed, you know, it's okay, let's save that bridge as long as it doesn't cost the city taxpayers any direct money, you know. And so it went before this panel, and Judge Pragerson met with the city, and they formed a public-private partnership. And so all these years, there's been this group. I mean, they didn't have many public-private partnerships. I think it was one of the first ones. It revolved, involved the city, and the city was going to help us administratively. They would own the bridge but they would not inflict any taxes on the local taxpayers. But they owned the bridge. And Preservation Cascade was organized. We became a charitable organization in 1996. That's when we formed Preservation Cascade Incorporated because we needed a charitable organization so when people donated money directly, it could be tax deductible and for a lot of reasons. So there was that, and then the state was involved because the National Trust was our first partner. The top legal counsel for the National Trust, Elizabeth Merrick, who was still a big friend of the bridge, came from Washington, D.C. when we had that case in Seattle. And she was working with the two local pro bono lawyers, and I've got to mention them because they still are in Great Falls. One was Beth Best, who is now a judge, and the other is Larry Anderson, who is a noted constitutional lawyer. So Beth Best and Larry are the first lawyers who became involved. They said they'll help us and they'll do it pro bono, which means they didn't charge us anything. We, we didn't have any money, but the point was, they became our lawyers, and then when the National Trust became interested, because we had people on the national level who saw merit in this beautiful, beautiful, as you mentioned, they don't make bridges like that anymore, Arch Bridge, they became involved. So the public-private partnership was wonderful. And now we still have the city involved. We've had the Preservation Cascade involved, and then for the... Um, National Trust State Historic Preservation Office is involved. Pete Brown, who's a state historic architect, is on this bridge rehab board. And the bridge rehab board are the ones that did all the administrative work. So although the city didn't collect any taxes, they contributed people, and so did the State Historic Preservation Office, 
and um, of course, Preservation Cascade. You know, none of us get paid. We're all volunteers. And some people said, my goodness, how do we do that? We're all, we have um, one paid employee who's our bookkeeper because it's very important that we mind all of the tax laws and all. And also, we've had a CPA. So we've paid the CPA, Certified Public Accountant, and our bookkeeper all these years. Other than that, no paid employees. It's been a labor of love for many of us. My kids said, you know, Mother, all these years, you know, I devote hours every day, and I, but I'm in love with the bridge. So, and and it's been a wonderful investment of my time. Right now, I can't do much. You know, at 98, I can talk, but but my body won't do what I want it to do. Absolutely, but your mind is is certainly uh, sharp as a tack, and I just want to set the stage in terms of how close it got for our listeners that so i'm guessing is it the the federal department of transportation or the montana department of transportation that wanted to demolish the bridge initially it was the montana department of transportation they wanted nothing to do with it they said it's an old bridge and that was before the ninth street bridge was built alongside of it and they said it's not serving any purpose and so they drew up the maps and they removed it and it was Fait complete. That was going to be, that's what was going to happen. And when we tried to stop it, we, frankly, we didn't get a lot of support from a lot of people. They said, it's old, it's decrepit, tear it down, it's ugly. So it was not easy, but I, people came around it. And now you rarely hear uh, complaints about it, especially since we light it up. That's another thing we did. We got a grant to light it up in 2007. And it, it's been a blessing to be able to light that bridge, but we've also paid Northwest Energy about $150,000 for those lights to be on because they charge us not only when the lights are on, but the, they have a rule that there's a demand charge. Just because those big bulbs are there, we've got to pay for it. So every month we have to come up with money to light it. We do charge people when they want to light it, $100 to light it for one night. But uh, we usually have to supplement it because our bill is well over 6000 a year, and we've done it since 2007. So, you know, we, we've uh, paid a lot of money for those lights. But it truly is iconic. I mean, you want to talk about it. It serves that perfect role of what it means, not just to preserve, but to kind of maximize the value, right? That right. As, a, as a relatively new person to Gray Falls, I... The bridge lights, I think, are, are, and you see this in pictures, right? When people come to Great Falls pictures, right, and they're at nighttime in Great Falls, every single one of them has that bridge, right? And I think it now, uh, I know Northwestern Energy on the Black Eagle Dam put up that huge American flag, and they, they really complement each other well, right? When you That's good. You know, we miss the smelter, and we also often get blamed. They said, heck, you saved that bridge. Why didn't you save the smelter stack? Well, it happened a few years before, and it is sad that the stack went down. And I don't know if you know the history. Were you here when they tried to blow it up and it wouldn't go? I have heard stories. I was not here to actually, like, witness when they tried to take it down unsuccessfully at first. You were not even born. It was 1983. I was a twinkle in my mom's eye. I'm, I'm a 1984 baby. <laughs> 
It was 1983, and we stood on the banks of the Missouri, and we watched because it refused to go down. And everybody, you know, those people who tore it down said, oh, it's full. we've got to do something. It's going to fall down. It would never have fallen down. But that's another story. And I'm really sorry that it couldn't be saved, but it was a different situation. With the bridge, it was owned by the, uh, you know, it was, under the Department of Transportation originally and then the city. But with the smelter stack, it was a private corporation. You know, it was uh, Amoco, it was uh, Sarco, I don't know. It was uh, copper mining, and they they just wouldn't, they weren't going to save it no matter what anybody did. But I do, uh, it's kind of intriguing, right, to see, I think we all would, it, it still would have been an iconic part of our skyline, so to speak, if we had it. The one that, you know, I think lots of people, myself included, when you go down to Anaconda, you know, they did save their stack, right? And it's a really big landmark, right? I mean, I think you you probably you know, think of it as... Melter stack was so important to kids all over. I know my five children, when we came back from a trip, no matter where we were, we'd give a nickel to the first one. I see the smelter stack, you know. <laughs> Boy, we all, everybody missed it. But now we have the bridge, and it was almost gone, as you noted, and we still have it. Thank goodness. And, and I love just the, kind of that whole of maintaining these connections to the past, right, that I think... Right. Just hearing that, you know, kind of warms my heart of, like, I can imagine, you know, back in the 1950s, right, you're driving into Great Falls and it pokes over the horizon, right? That grounds us. The ones I think of always are, uh, you know, the old Milwaukee train station. I absolutely love here. And then the where the the Hotel Arvon block. Yes, I like that. Well, the whole point is... You know, you don't know what you've got till it's gone, usually. Joni Mitchell said that. It was featured in the National Geographic story about our bridge. Our bridge was one of only 40-some-odd structures in the United States, including, oh, the Star Spangled Banner, including Thomas Edison's Invention Factory, including uh, the Statue of Liberty, including a lot of icons. But our bridge is the only thing from Montana. And we're so lucky and happy that we still have that. And um, I think that at one time, one of our, we did have a landscape architect who was quite poetic. And he said that, you know, if you didn't see things in Great Falls, it would look like every other city in the country. And they all look alike, you know, kind of a generic look. And uh, he said, you know, instead of Great Falls, it would probably would have been called generic falls or something because all these cities who look which look alike, a, lot, a few of them don't have any landmarks. They've been t- torn down or they, you know, they weren't recognized. We do have a, some beautiful buildings here. We've got Paris Gibson Square. And we, we've got, as you mentioned, the Ursuline. And now, of course, we have the beautiful Russell Museum. But we have beautiful structures in addition to the regular things that everybody has, like we have along 10th Avenue South. 
But and I think you're you're on to something. I think of new cities, right, that they are, you know, generic and sterile is the word that I use a lot is that you even see this in terms of the way that neighborhoods are built today, right? That they are they're just cookie cutter. I mean, you know, you have like three floor plans and I get that they're efficient and we want affordable housing and it's much easier when every house isn't designed, you know, differently, but they just get a stock one and you use all the same materials and you just put them up. But I do think there there's something lost and, and the cities have a different vibe. I, I, I grew up in St. Louis, very beautiful architecture and the city there has preserved it for the most part. When you go to these cities, you get a sense of comfort and a connection to the past that you simply can't get in a Phoenix, right? I I feel like Phoenix is just really, I mean, it's like one giant suburb and it's almost undifferentiated. You know, the, the strip mall is great for, for capitalism and consumerism, but, uh, it certainly did no favors to our, uh, collective, kind of cultural architectural heritage right i i think it's it's they're meant to be plowed under well i think people are realizing that so the art deco style the civic center all thank goodness it's been saved you know there was a time that art the civic center would just have been torn down instead of fixing it up and uh of course we have the beautiful courthouse here we have a lot of things going for us and i love gray falls i came here as a young bride I was 19 years old, and my husband, I fell in love with this Montana farm boy when he was stationed back in Niagara Falls. I was from Buffalo, New York, and I went to a USO party, and that one day, Christmas Day of 42, changed the whole direction of my life because that's when I met Rick. And so when we were married three years later and came to Montana, I remember I came in on the Milwaukee Road. There was a train there, Milwaukee train. And when I arrived at the train station, my young husband-to-be was there at the platform. And I looked around, and I started to cry. (laughs) And he said, what's the matter? I said, Montana. Montana means mountains. Where are the mountains? And (laughs) I remember Rick pointing you know, toward the high woods and the mountains in the distance. He's over yonder. And I was very unhappy because I had visualized Great Falls, Montana, to look like, oh, Bozeman, Helena, Whitefish, you know, surrounded by mountains. But as years went by, it was really interesting. I grew to love the big sky country and the plains. And heck, Mountains over yonder. My family, my husband started taking us to the high woods. Hey, it's almost only 35 miles away, for goodness sake. So even though the mountains right, are right up against the city of Great Falls, they're over yonder, and I love them there. And uh, I remember when I was in Helena, serving in the legislature and in the Constitutional Convention, which I did subsequently, I didn't like it. I, I rented a house right in the mountains because I was finally, I was a young widow by then, and I had my two younger children with me. And I, they said, why can't we live in, right in the middle of town near the capital? I said, I want to live in the mountains. And I didn't like it because it got dark so early, and I missed the bright blue sky. And so, you know, uh, it's interesting how 
life turns out. I mean, in the final analysis, I prefer Great Falls to the big sky country and the mountains over yonder. You know, that's I have a, a similar kind of belief. And I, I thought certainly when I moved out to Montana that the mountains are a big part of it. And and the mountains are a big part of my life. I'm mm-hmm. you know, I was up in Glacier last weekend at Iceberg Lake and but I do think that there's something to be said for our kind of you know, the plains right as they come up into the mountains. And to your point on the high woods, boy, is that underrated. I That drive where you go through Big Sag, you know, kind of Shonkin Road out through the actual town of Highwood, and then you end up in Geraldine, is you feel like you're in the Scottish Highlands. And But it's not – what I love about Gray Falls is it's – you know, I think our Chamber of Commerce uses this base camp, you know, Montana, right, is that – I can be on a trail in Glacier in two and a half hours. I can be right. on a trail in the Rocky Mountain front, you know, out past Augusta in an hour and 20 minutes. Then I can be down in the Dearborn or in the Highwood. You have such a rich variety. You know, definitely don't want to leave out the, the sluice boxes and, you know, the snowies and showdown and all that. Is And what I find to be special about Great Falls is the sense of community. Mm-hmm. 100%. I have said repeatedly that I've lived in close proximity to millions of people my entire life. This is the first time I've ever lived in a community. And it is folks like you who have, over many, many, many decades, built this, you know, hard to describe, but yet real uh, spirit and and manifested through the the institutions. And so I think that's a great kind of segue is I would love to get your thoughts on, so you arrived out here in Great Falls in the 40s, right? I arrived in 1945, September, August, right, and I got married in September of 1945. So v, VJ Day, Victory in Japan Day, had just uh, happened, right? Yeah. What a kind of, you? yeah, you were there at the start of what I always think of as kind of the halcyon days of old right i think all of us look back with nostalgia on the 50s and 60s where the new consumer stuff was still new right and it had that allure and there was the space race and this sense of unbridled optimism that i get you know purely through a book but but you lived and so describe for me you know as you arrive in great falls you're sad you're not in the mountains but it's 1945 the the great war is over Right. We as the allies, you know, are victorious and, and, uh, you know, the totalitarian fascists have been defeated. What is the milieu like that you come into here in Great Falls? Well, it was, it was almost immediately it felt like home. They used to have a welcome wagon and people were really welcomed into this community. And my husband, oh, my young husband, to be, bless him, he was, his job mainly in his early years on the fire department. He came, of course, because he was from Montana. His folks lived in Laurel, but he was when he came and he was we were married. He was stationed at Malmstrom, and his folks lived in Laurel. And but when he was discharged from the military, it wasn't long before he became a fireman. And those were the happiest years being a fireman's wife, and ultimately he was the captain. 
But then I, I have a hard time talking about that because then he became ill with cancer. And cancer is very prevalent among firemen. In those days, we didn't realize there might have been an environmental connection. But even before being a fireman, he was stationed over in England, and he was a crew chief on a B-24 bomber. And he practically took a bath, all of this, these young mechanics did, in carcinogens. When they cleaned the uh, parts of the plane, I mean, he says that they used these terrible, terrible detergents that were carcinogens. And almost all the men in his group, he was the crew chief, died of one type of cancer or another. And then when he died of cancer, he had been a fireman, too, and exposed to a lot of the fumes. But it was just so unexpected. He died when he was 48, so it's hard for me to talk about those years. But those years from 45, he 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 was 48, and the year was 68 when he died. So, And when he died, uh, then I was left with the five children, and uh, I had to work outside the home before that. I didn't work outside the home, and being a fireman's wife, I, I stayed home and took care of the children, but I joined every group in town. I was on the library board, and I I was, I was, tried to help, and I was one of those who helped out Star Public Radio, by the way. I was on that initial committee in 1983. That was after my husband had died. But um, as a young widow, I just kept going and going and raised my five children, and they brought me so much joy. My oldest daughter, Cheryl, retired as a pathologist here, MD, PhD. And, and my so, my next son, who is my caregiver now, Greg, he graduated as an electrical engineer. My third child, Robert, is an attorney. He was a, he went to um, law school, University of Montana, and was on law review and worked for the judge when he graduated, and then became a, a lawyer for a big firm in Montana, and then. Because his wife was from the east, he moved back east, and he's now in South Carolina. My next daughter, Claire, became an entrepreneur. She's always very artistic, and a lot of people know Claire Bates. She became a very successful jeweler, and her husband is a, a retired lawyer. <laughs> They're now in New York and Indiana. And then my youngest son, Roger, and that's another difficult thing for me to talk about because he died a few years ago. And he was graduate of Stanford, MD, PhD. So my kids got had a wonderful education here. The basis was all Great Falls Public Schools, and they all wound up in with wonderful careers. And they've all been. And they were all Great Falls Great Falls High School graduates. Every one of them went to Great Falls High and. And they went to Paris Gibson Junior High before it was Paris Gibson Art Place. And they all went to Emerson School. You know, when we bought our lot, and I'm still in the same house that my husband built. He built it in 1948 when my oldest son, who's my caregiver now, was born. So he's been off and on in this house all his life. Um, uh, I, I just feel so blessed to be able to have been here, and this house has stood the test of time. <clears throat> Rick was so talented. 
uh, he could do anything. And he became a journeyman carpenter besides being a fireman. And he was a journeyman mechanic as a crew chief. And then he worked on cars, too. But I had a wonderful life here my whole life. And I've had wonderful friends. And I just love Gray Falls. And so I'm hoping that it can survive. And I, I'm just hoping we would get along. Because I don't care what their political interests are. They just got to learn to get along. I've never... Been living, I never lived in an era where people get so upset about political things, you know, destroying their relationships, their family relationships. I just don't understand that because, um, you know, I think people have a right to believe what they believe and, and, uh, that, the, but that shouldn't dominate their lives. I actually talk a lot of, on the show. Uh, it's, it's not strictly speaking political. It's a, kind of way of going about life in the world and I, I talk about a culture of contempt that I've seen developing which essentially you know is what it sounds like is that we are looking to demonize people and you know they always say the the best way to ensure permanent ignorance is to uh, you know have contempt prior to investigation and I think that that's really become if not pervasive uh, something that's certainly poisoning the the kind of body politic of our society and that's that we just see something on facebook or we see a story and we make all these broad assumptions not just about what somebody believes but their their values right i i i know that look we fought a civil war here right we've had plenty of very aggressive violent vehement disagreements as a people and that is part of a, 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 a democratic system, right? Uh, what I would say that at least is new in my lifetime is the per pervasiveness of it, that there seems to be almost no arena that is set aside, right? That it you, you bring it into your family, into your schools, into your employment, and that it's not just something that we all need to be cognizant of as good citizens, that it almost infuses, you know, and takes on a, a almost quasi-religious quality to it, right? Is that mm -hmm. if you oppose somebody, you're not just wrong or have flawed thinking, you're evil and, and need to be, you know, destroyed. And I, I have something, I, I know we've been talking a long time, and this is more than an interview, it's just a interesting to talk to someone who understands, but there's just one thing I'd like to bring out, Thomas. I mean, it was such a valuable lesson for me because I learned it personally from experience, and that was I served in the Constitutional Convention. That was really a wonderful experience for me, and when we agreed at the beginning to sit alphabetically that made all the difference in the world. You know, we were elected on our party labels. There were so many Republicans, so many Democrats, so many Independents. When we got there for our orientation, and the Constitution Convention was in 72, so we gathered in November of 71, and we decided, why do we have to sit in that confrontational style that the legislature uses? with Democrats on one side and Republicans on the other. Why don't we just sit alphabetically? And what a difference that made. Of the hundred of us, by the time the convention was over, we didn't pay any attention who was what. 
when we had an issue, we discussed it and we discussed it, and we decided on the basis of each issue, not political parties. But what really was so dramatic for me is that this was in 72. So with, in 79, I decided to run for the legislature. I said, well, I'll just see what it's like. And I, I was elected very easily because I was pretty well known then. didn't cost me anything. I just ran for the legislature, and before you know it, I was there. And I hated it from the minute we had our orientation session because they said, now here, the Republicans had their caucus, the Democrats had their caucus, we sat on one side, the others, and some of my best friends were on the other side. And I said, this is ridiculous. I don't want to vote party day, but we were told by our respective parties, this is the party line, this is how you vote. And boy, I, I and so by the time the session was over, I loved some of my fellow legislators. Oh, we had some really wonderful people, just as we did at the convention. But by sitting in that confrontational style, <laughs> never the twain shall meet. We were on one side and then they were on the other. It was horrible. And so I decided never to run again, and I, I didn't. And I had the best friendship with a person who history knows about. Her name was Carla Gray. She was a Republican Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And Carla used to visit with me all the time. And others, she'd say, you know, I just wish that the legislators would sit alphabetically. I think that it would set the tone. <coughs> but, you know, we've talked about it since, in fact, this last session. Someone even had the gumption to introduce the bill to sit alphabetically. And it got a lot of support, but not enough to do anything. But the interesting thing, Thomas, is they don't have to pass a bill. They don't have to do anything. When I say they, I mean, please, your legislators. They can get together and during their orientation session, under the rules, they can just say, heck, let's just sit alphabetically. That's all they have to do, just say, let's sit alphabetically. But they're not going to do it. Do you think they'd ever do that in Congress? What a difference that would be. Well, and I, I agree with you, Arlene, and I do think it's having these conversations where we talk about stuff like this that will eventually start to to see change in the real world is that i notice on a day-to-day -day basis you know we are we don't see the world as it is right we see it as we are and we as citizens can have conversations and you're talking to people and you say you know what would be really cool is if our legislature, you know, they all sat alphabetically and all of a sudden, you know, enough people start saying that and you'll see the legislature sit alphabetically that I think it was Lyndon B. Johnson. And this was a conversation he was having with Martin Luther King Jr. And I, he basically just said this this truth, right, that it's, you know, I don't I'm not a dictator. right? I, I don't get to decide what policies I'm going to enact or how I'm going to you know, be the executive coalitions need to force me to do it that's the way it works and and that's kind of the other side of things that i see that's very um, troubling is that you see so much political engagement say on social media or mm -hmm. at the coffee shop right or but 
you don't see a lot of folks that are actually getting in on the on the ground. And, and let's be honest, it's easy to sit on the sidelines and throw rocks, right? Instead of rolling up your sleeves and getting in there on the field. And I think if people got on the field more, they would notice that things can change, that they can have an impact. And, and, and that's just what we need to see is people, the one I think of in Great Falls that I know they don't get a ton of engagement with are the neighborhood councils that, you know, that is a way that you can have a direct impact. You know, those neighborhood councils, they report to the uh, city commission. You can go to the city commission meetings. What I think saddens me is that I see a lot of just throwing stones and, and there's no purpose to it, right? You get in these echo chambers and you get a kind of gang up people on Facebook or whatever it might be. And besides maybe, you know, I, I don't see a lot of productive, fruitful conversations going on where I love the idea. Like, I think the bridge project is a perfect example of you didn't just sit there and bemoan the loss of this bridge. You got a coalition together and you did the hard work. And here we are 30 years later getting to enjoy the fruits of that labor. And that part of it for me is it, it's toxic uh, political environment, but also fed by people are engaged superficially. They don't actually get in the trenches in the same way. I mean, I think of tons of, of uh, groups, you know, and I, you, you think of Rotary or Kiwanis or Lions Club, uh, any of them, you know, they are all, if you look at the membership, it, it's skewing older. And I think it's always been that way, but you got to see a little bit, you know, where's the, where's the next generation coming from? And, and they're on their couch, right? And they may be very angry and they may have very strident political views, but are they actually trying to be solution oriented and, and come up with things or are they just, you know, bemoaning that we have a society that, uh, you know, has become toxic or that is full of these, you know, insane right wingers or insane left wingers, however you want to see it. Uh, and I, I think that's something that we really need to start by just changing the tone of our conversations and by making our actions align with our words. And I do think I agree with you completely. And the reason Preservation Cascade Incorporated is such a wonderful organization, you know, I, so I mentioned we were Organized in 1996, we decided early on, no political discussions. Our meetings have to do with the merits of the bridge. And frankly, we've had presidents of one party and vice presidents of the other. We don't, who cares, you know? We just didn't get involved. And when real controversial issues came up, we just didn't get involved, uh, from our respective parties. You know, we just decided. We're going to accomplish this purpose. But if we had been adamant, as so many people now are, and when they're political parties, they say, oh, I don't want anything to do with them. You know, they don't think the way I do. But the whole point is, we didn't let those things interfere. I, I still don't care on our board if people are Republicans or Democrats or independents or what they are. You know, the, the common purpose is, we want to save the bridge, and we want to restore the bridge, and we want to support our organizations and politics aside. But I think nowadays it's hard to avoid. 
I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I just live, I would love to live a few more years till things return to some modicum of normalcy. But do you think there's any hope for that, Thomas? Oh, 100%. So I, I believe a lot of what I see in, in the change is that social media is something that's just geared towards toxicity, right? It makes you kind of faceless. You're not actually confronting the person and you don't know people that you're interacting with outside of the comments they make on Facebook, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. part of what it has to be is just individuals need to determine one is social media and getting into these endless threads actually doing anything productive for my life? Is it doing anything productive for my community? Is this something I want to spend my time on first off? And then secondly, when I'm engaging on this, do I want to be someone who furthers division? And, and I'm not saying you can't be passionate and disagree with people, but do you, do you have to demonize folks? And that's what I see is a lot of cheap shots, a lot of personal attacks. Uh, you can you can have principles and, and strongly defend them without uh, demonizing people. But I, I see so much, Arlene, uh, a, a spirit amongst our young people. I work a lot with young people at Alliance for Youth, and there is a, a, a transition going on just for our entire world. I, I, I was the last generation that grew up. There was no cell phones, right? There was no mm -hmm. Internet. And the impact of that on the social-emotional world that humans now inhabit is just still it's like we're part of a grand social experiment but the value based is is, is gives me hope right that i still see you know loads of of compassion and a desire to serve and and it's one of these things of trying to ad adopt these platforms right whether it's facebook or instagram TikTok, you know, you name it, and and use them to further kind of the timeless values uh, that we've held dear as humans, right? I mean, it's kind of a back-to-basics approach that technology is a tool. It's not a ethical uh, series of guidelines that's going to help you live life, right? And I think that that's what we need to go back to. Well, I'd love to end on that note because what I'm afraid of, one of my sons says, you know, it's getting worse. We're going to hell in a handbasket woven by a bunch of idiots. <laughs> and, you know, the social network has been a, a big part of it. And you work with young people, and I have young people in my family, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And my older grandchildren weren't affected by this, and the younger ones I'm really concerned about. They're just as smart, they're just as caring, but that darn social network is making them unhappy. But I'm, I would like to leave on a positive note because as a person like you who works with Alliance Youth and you see some hope, I just hope, I pray that it comes before I go. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I think we can already see... Uh you know, green shoots coming up that what I, you know, and this is that classic, I think this is Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right? What we have to fear most is fear itself is that 
if you objectively look at our country, right, in terms of uh, any any metric of, you know, basically, are, are your basic needs being met? Uh, are our folks, uh, you know, living in some modicum of comfort in general? It's better than it's ever been. We are seeing families fray apart, right? We're seeing increased mental health issues, addiction, uh, has touched my life profoundly and, and, and millions of families across the country. But I, I think the only way that we continue down this path is if we, as a collective people, determine that there's nothing to salvage here. Basically, it's going to be a, a mental perception issue that turns into reality that you know, it's that classic, I think it's Henry Ford, right, that said, if you think you can, you can, and if you, you know, you're right, and if you think you can't, you're right. And if we get into some kind of collective tunnel vision where we just say, well, everything's going to, you know, hell in a handbasket, and, you know, idiots are weaving it, we're going to have idiots weaving it because we're not going to engage as citizens and we're not going to mm -hmm. do the work that, like, I, I, I see this apathy. I see how people turn to it. And the only thing to say to people is, if you want change, get up and start being the change. I mean, these are things that have been repeated since the dawn of recorded history, right? I mean, you got to be the change you want to see in the world. These aren't, they're, they're cliches, but they're cliches because they've stood the test of centuries and those who live them out make an impact and it and it benefits their life too so I, I i just don't see any reason why you know and now i'm going back into these tropes i think of bill clinton right where there's nothing wrong with america that can't be fixed by americans and i think that's as true today as it was in the early 90s or whenever it would have been said well that's a real positive note and i'm proud of you and um this is an aside i just hope that someday you'll think of running for office when it's really meaningful we're not when when it's like hitting your head against the stone wall, but when it's meaningful, when you can get some of these thoughts across to others, and you know, uh, I think you do a great deal of good in the political realm. So I hope you're just a kid, Thomas. So I'm hoping you'll consider that for your future. I I very much appreciate the the kind words, and and I would say that you know it's folks like you, and uh, I'm sure you know. Uh, you know, Dwight Smith and, and Norm Ashby Smith. And, They're my friends. They're my buddies. So I have felt so blessed to have uh, mentors. I say we stand on the on the shoulders of giants, right? And mm -hmm. the common thread that I see, you know, uh, Jerry Jennings comes to mind. Mm -hmm. uh, they're service-oriented mm -hmm. and, and they're action-oriented. They're not mm -hmm. folks that just sit and pontificate. Right. And... I cannot tell you how how blessed I feel to be able to glean, you know, hear these stories of moving out to Montana, right, in the in the 1940s, you know, and coming from the east and it's a totally different world and raising five kids and 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 yet you you come through it all untarnished by the world is the phrase I use. And it's not coming from naivety. You know, it's You've you've been there and you've been in the crucible, 
and and yet you come out with this positive mentality and when i see you know we, you went through world war Two and 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 you know the cold war and lots of trial and tribulation and yet your spirit is undaunted like that to me says that we certainly collectively as a people can can learn from from our forebears right our 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 folks that helped us get here and and take those lessons and live them out and and have a continue this legacy of 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 a great country and and great communities and states thank you thomas and it's a pleasure visiting with someone like you who has such a positive outlook and um i feel better about the future of the world and i mean i just i just want it to be livable and i want so much to go to where we were with loving each other and treating each other respectfully and i'm hoping that um that that will happen i hope i'm here to see it that is inspiring that like you guys created the world of today and it's a pretty good world right so we've got we've got great role models and and we'll get the best of times again because i live through the best of times and the worst of times with their wars and depression and all kinds of problems the civil rights problems in Vietnam. But, you know, on balance, life has been good, and I have a wonderful family, and I have wonderful friends, and I feel blessed. So thank you for being part of my blessing today. Thank you for blessing me too, Arlene. <laughs> You've been listening to Voices and Views on Great Falls Public Radio, KGPR 89.9 FM. That was Arlene Reichert, the Grand Dame of Great Falls, uh, a true servant leader for, you know, 70 plus years here. She's 98 years young. And uh, just uh, a comment to the listeners, you know, wow, share this with your friends. That that was special. Um, you talk about a, a woman that has gone through the trials and tribulations, both in her personal life and, and as uh, our country has had its ups and downs and, and a lot of good lessons uh, for all of us. And so, Grateful for the opportunity and grateful to you for listening. And I'll be back with you in two weeks. for listening. If you'd like more information about KGPR, please visit our website, kgpr.org, where you can find a link to donate, links to all of our other locally produced programming, and information about your local voice, KGPR Great Falls.